Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we want to welcome you no matter who you are, where you're from. We're walking through the pastoral epistles that we might understand as a church what it means to be a people that live out the living Christ. The pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, written by the Apostle Paul towards the end of his life, where he's instructing his young protege Timothy in how to live out as the people of God in a way that honors Christ. The thesis of Paul's letters is really found in 1 Timothy 3.15, where he writes, I want people to know how they ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Three distinct ways in which he refers to the church. The church of the living God, the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, that supporting structure or foundation or those walls that support the load-bearing walls in order to hold up the roof. All of these are images to describe the church of God, the called out ones of God, and how we are to live out the living Christ. Because we don't have a memorialized faith that Christ is in the grave and we remember that back then. No, we have a living faith that our Savior who went into the grave came out of the grave three days later and now sits on high with his Father. We have a living faith. And as we, as the people of God, we want to live out that living faith in a way that honors him. So walking through, just let's remember where we're at, in verse 1 to 2, Paul opens up with a greeting to Timothy, and we are challenged in the first big idea of this passage to be a people whose lips drip a living faith. And the way we talk and the way that we act, you just see the Apostle Paul, his lips drip a living faith before God. In verses 3 through 7, we are challenged to be a people undistracted from the living Christ, to be a people undistracted from the living Christ because Timothy was facing in Ephesus where the city where Timothy was ministering, false teachers who were using clever, Christ-concealing arguments and speculations and vain discussions, promoting themselves, promoting their own agenda, but the gospel was getting lost in the background. Paul challenges Timothy and the church, don't get distracted from the living Christ. And that the church is the place where Christ is to be heralded, seen, and understood. In verses 8 to 11, we're challenged to be a people who feel the weight of the law. The false teachers were using the law in a way to promote themselves. Now, Paul says, Timothy, the law is good if one uses it lawfully, if one uses it rightly. And how should the law be used? It should crush us. As you read through the Old Testament, as Jesus expounds on the Old Testament law in the New Testament, there should be a sense in which you read through it and you say, not only in action, but in thought, indeed, there is no way that I can possibly keep this law. It should crush us and bring us low and make us realize that we need a Savior. Now, how should the law be used? The Apostle Paul there says that in verse 11, it should be used yet to crush us but it's also to be used in accordance with the gospel of the glory of Christ, the glory of God. That the law is not an end in itself, but it is used to bring us low, make us realize and prepare us that we need a Savior, and that it brings us to the gospel of Christ, who is the fulfillment of that law, who satisfies the moral law, the ceremonial law, and gives us an eternal destiny 
in heaven. We are to be a people who feel the weight of the law. And then in verse 12 to 17, here's the big idea for today. We are challenged to be a people who feel the weight of grace. To be a people who feel the weight of grace. But what is grace? What does it look like? Grace is often talked about and yet equally is often misunderstood. When we think about grace in the New Testament, there are 131 uses of grace in the ESV. 124 of those are found in the New Testament and 86 of those are with the Apostle Paul, which means two-thirds of the word grace being spoken of in the Bible are found with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is often called the Apostle of Grace. Not a term he invented, it actually picks up on an Old Testament concept called chesed, or the covenantal love of God. But Paul is bringing it out so that we might understand what grace is and what God has done for us. Now I get this question often or comment often and people misunderstand. They say, if we start talking about law and, and obedience to God and being holy, sometimes people are quick to respond and say, yeah, but don't forget about grace. Don't forget about grace. This past week, talking with someone, and we were talking about what it means to live out Christ, and the individual said, yeah, but don't forget about grace. And I said, what do you mean by that? Just out of curiosity. And they struggled to define it. But the individual, and many, including myself years ago, grace is understood as God is so loving and so kind. He knows you're frail and he doesn't care about your sin. It's not that big of a deal. And sometimes that's how we talk about grace. Oh, you blew it? Well, do, well thank God for his grace. Well, yes, but. So what, what is grace? Grace is not that God doesn't care about our sin. Grace is that God cares so much about our sin and our rebellion that he sent his only son to die on the cross for your sin to take the place of your judgment and cleanse you from your rebellion and take the wrath of God and then out of that, give you his righteousness that you do not deserve. That's grace. It's a gift. Something you don't deserve, but it's a gift that's not ambiguously defined. Grace is Jesus and the cross that is given to you that you could never earn or deserve. Grace is a cleansing, it's a status, it's a position. It is also an empowering. My grace is sufficient for you? What does he mean? The strength that I want to give you is sufficient. You don't deserve my strength, you don't deserve my joy, but in Christ, God gives it. Grace is a beautiful concept. It is a gift, it is unearned, it is unmerited, but it is always in Christ. Now, why does God give grace? This is the other thing we have to understand. Grace is not there as a Band-Aid for when you try your hardest and then fail and then God kind of sprinkles some grace over you. No, grace is something that you totally do not deserve, but God just gives you his love, his kindness, his mercy, his son. Why? Not because you were righteous, but rather because God's heart just loves to give give good things. 
The heart of God is one of gifting of love. Now, we are to be a people who feel the weight of grace. And perhaps there is no one who felt that more than the Apostle Paul. Now, I want to give you a roadmap as we go through these verses. The big idea is to be a people who feel the weight of grace. Now, what does grace look like, number one? Number one, what does grace look like? And I'm going to give you an example. And then number two, how does grace work? I'm going to give you a brief summary. And this verse 12 to verse 17 is one of the greatest summaries of grace in the entirety of the New Testament. So what does grace look like? How does grace work? And then number three, what does a grace-weighted church look like? And this is a challenge to us. Okay, number one, what does grace look like? We're going to give an example. But before we give the example, let's listen to the words of Paul in verse 12 down to verse 17. Paul writes this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. I say it all together and all God's people said, amen. amen. What does grace look like? I'm going to give you an example because this is what Paul does. Paul says to the church, you want to know what grace looks like? Exhibit A, me, Paul, who was Saul. I'm going to use those names interchangeably. They're not two different people. Saul was before Paul came to Christ, and then Paul is what he was named after he came to Christ. But who is this guy? Turn with me to Acts chapter 9, please, for just a moment. Because if you remember, through this study, we're going to frequently look back at the book of Acts and use that as a framework, as a background canvas upon which we're going to paint this image of the church in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. Who is Paul? We know that Paul, Acts 22, verse 3, is a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia and brought up in that city and then also in Jerusalem. Now, where is Tarsus? Tarsus, if you're looking at a map and you look at the Mediterranean Sea and then you have the coastline of Israel up to Turkey, right up here, where Turkey meets the coastline of Israel and Syria, Tarsus is right up here in that crook, in that, in that angle of land. And Tarsus is a major city. It is a major trading post. It's also a university town. This is where one of the Yale, Harvard, and Princeton's of its day was located. Tarsus, Athens, and Alexandria formed the three major centers of education and culture. Tarsus was a large city, a place where there was shipping and trade, and it was a major port going to the west, but also to the orient across the land. Paul, or Saul at this time, lived there with his family. And we know he was a devout Jew. 
His family was a devout Jew of the sect of the Pharisees. He studied the law, loved the law. Perhaps his father was actually a leader in the synagogue. But Saul has this unique opportunity because he is not only a Jew and a Pharisee, zealous and brilliant of mind. So much so that later Paul said that concerning my qualifications, circumcised on the eighth day, Philippians chapter 3, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, he's of the elite tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, and to the law, blameless. He was a Jew, Acts 22, brought up in Tarsus, and then probably in his teenage years, taken from Tarsus, where not only did he have an education there in the synagogue, but also as a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek-influenced Jew, understood and knew Greek extensively. The use of Greek in his letters in the Bible, from a scholastic standpoint, equals and surpasses anything that we find in the secular world, including those like Homer and Socrates. It is flawless use of Greek. But he's also a Jew and understands Hebrew. He is then moved down to Jerusalem where he completes his training and studies under Gamaliel. Gamaliel, who was known and even called the beauty of the law, that was what his nickname was. He was so eloquent in his proclamation and, and unpacking of the Old Testament law that Gamaliel was called the beauty of the law. So Saul, educated under some of the most rigorous conditions with a brilliant mind, zealous for the law, and we're introduced to him in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, where this young man, zealous for the law, all of a sudden sees this offshoot of Judaism. It's what it appears. Former Jews, former priests, former... Hebrews, zealous for the law, but now we're talking about this Messiah, Yahshua, Jesus. And it is spreading like wildfire across Jerusalem. Thousands are coming into this new sect and belief and religion. And Saul is alarmed. And that alarm turns into fury. Now these people would desecrate and blaspheme Yahweh. And so in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of the leaders of the church, is arrested and brought in and then stoned to death. And in Acts 7, 58, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now we should understand this, not just simply as he happened to be there and they put their garments down at his feet. He was one of the administrators, if not the administrator of the execution. That's why the garments are being laid. He is overseeing it. We see that practice even in later law teachings by rabbis. So Paul, or Saul, sorry, is integral to the execution of one of the greatest early voices proclaiming Christ. And then in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. In Acts chapter 22, we see that Saul persecuted the way. The way was the early name of Christianity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They called themselves followers of the way. So that he persecuted them to death. This is not just badgering. This young, zealous, brilliant mind is looking to destroy these people. 
binding them, delivering them to prison. Both men and women, he is indiscriminate. Man, woman, divider and destroyer of families, of marriages, ripping them out of their cities and their communities, committing them to prison and killing many of them. It says that he received letters to go to Damascus and other cities to bring the Christians in bonds from Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem. Now, Damascus, about 120 miles from Jerusalem to the north, Damascus itself, a beautiful city, a large city. But to put someone in bonds and then to trek them south, that 120 miles across that rough terrain, was not only hard, it was cruel and reserved for only the lowest of the low. Saul is, in effect, committing acts of enslavement, looking to destroy and kill. In Acts chapter 26, we see that this Saul locked up many of the saints in prison, many of them, not just a few, many of them. And when they were put to death, Saul, later Paul, writes, I cast my vote against them. I said, yes, kill them. It's someone coming into heritage, breaking up your family, throwing you in prison, and then casting a vote for your death just because you named the name of Christ. Not only that, it says that in the synagogues, he would stand people up and try to make them blaspheme. To pull you up to the platform here and say, I want you to hate Christ publicly. I want you to denigrate that name. I want you to spit on that name. And he caused people to blaspheme the holy name of Jesus. It says in verse 11 of Acts 26 that in a raging fury, he persecuted them even to foreign cities. And then in Acts 9, an event will happen that will change the world. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, where I asked you to turn, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. No mercy. No kindness, only hate and destruction filling his heart. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, on his way of what? On his way of rebellion against the living Christ. On his way to cause more blasphemy and hatred against Christ. On his way to destroy the people of the living Christ. And he approached Damascus, that white city rising up amid the oasis in modern-day Syria. Damascus is actually one of the oldest continuously lived-in cities in human history. It predates Abraham. We understand this to be a big city where maybe even as many as 20,000 Jews were living there during the time of Saul. He comes to this city, and he's almost there. And in verse 4, verse 3, it says, Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he responded, 
Who are you, Lord? Now imagine what he's about to hear. He has just spent his life destroying anyone who names Christ. The blinding glory of heaven rips apart the fabric of time and space and shines down so that he gets a glimpse of the inner sanctum of heaven and the very power of God through the voice of the living Christ. And when he says, who is it? The voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What does Saul think at this point? He's a Pharisee. Where just the mention of Yahweh's name is done in hushed tones out of reverence. Many don't even write the name Yahweh because of his holiness. And to see God is to invite death. He knows the Old Testament law. He knows what happened at Sinai. And Saul believes that he is following a God that anybody who is against this God, that God will kill and destroy. That's the mindset that Saul has about Yahweh. Yahweh is hostile against anyone who is hostile to him. And so what does Saul think at this moment? He now knows this Jesus is Yahweh, is God himself. What does Saul expect is going to happen in this moment? I'll tell you what he expects. He expects to die. He expects death. But what does this living Jesus say? Rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. He rises blind has to be led into Damascus and for several days sits in the quietness of his mind and his thoughts. I will tell you what you're going to do. Who is this God? What is he going to tell me to do? This one whom I have blasphemed and hated and destroyed his people. What's going to happen to me? He has hated the name of God by hating the name of Christ. Enemy number one of the church, enemy number one of the living Christ. God then speaks to Ananias. He tells him to go to Paul, or Saul, forgive me, shortly to be known as Paul. He tells him to go to Saul. Ananias is understandably fearful. Ananias, probably a leader in the synagogue, now a Christian. But then in verse 15, the Lord says to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul was an ambassador of destruction, an emissary number one of Satan, and the prime blasphemer of the name of Christ. But God jumps in his path, not because Saul all of a sudden said, you know what, this isn't a really good path to be on. Maybe I should change my ways before it catches up with me. 
God jumps in his way, says, Saul, I have better plans for you. And he who is blasphemer of the name of Christ, you see this in verse 15, he is now going to be chosen to carry the name that he blasphemed. He's now going to be chosen to bear that name in honor to the nations. Instead of an ambassador of death and destruction, he's going to be transformed into an ambassador of life. The name that he hated, he's going to carry it. Why? Why did God do this? Simply out of grace. And it stuck with Paul the rest of his life. Why did Paul believe? Because God stepped into Paul's path. God intervened. God's grace had a lasting impression on Paul so that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9 to 10, Paul writes, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Galatians 1.13, you know of my former life in Judaism, he writes, how I persecuted the church of God violently, ravaged it, and I tried to destroy it. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal the Son to me, Paul says, you want to see what grace is? There is no one who deserves damnation more than me. And yet God, grace overflowed. And you're sitting here wondering, can God's grace cover me? You don't know where I've been, what I have done. You don't know my background. And you're sitting here wondering if God's grace is sufficient for you. The very point of this testimony is that there is no one who has blasphemed the name of God up to this point like Saul, and yet God in his grace washed over Saul, made him Paul, transformed him from an ambassador to death into an ambassador of life, and then a blasphemer from, of Christ to a carrier of the name of Christ. And there are few, maybe no one outside of Christ himself that has had a greater impact on world history than this man. With that, Paul writes, Timothy, Timothy, remember my story. Remember God's grace. So we come to number two. How does grace work? And he gives a summary. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. I thank him who has given me strength. What is grace? Grace strengthens us. It's a gift of God that shifts us from death to life through the Son, through believing faith. And it empowers us. Paul says, Timothy, if God's grace could save me and has empowered me, God's grace will keep you, Timothy. Don't give up. Stay strong. God is with you. He will help you. He helped me when I was a blasphemer. He will surely help you. God's grace, his kindness is the reason for Paul's heart and passion. He said, Christ Jesus, our Lord, 
judged him faithful. Now we have to read this carefully because it looks like I thank him who's given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful. It looks like God has given him strength, God has given him grace because Paul was not that bad of a guy. That is actually a misreading of this. A better translation or understanding of this would be to look at it and say, I thank God who has given me strength. God's grace not only strengthens me, but God's grace is the reason why I'm faithful. He has made me faithful. I am faithful because God in his grace has gifted me his power and his strength to be faithful. Any faithfulness that you see is nothing to do with Paul, but everything to do with the living Christ who lives within me. That's what he's saying. And that grace not only cleanses me, empowers me, and makes me what I wasn't before, but it appoints me to his service. A grace that honors and elevates to a position to bear the name of Christ. Salvation is not just salvation, but it's also elevation to a status and a position of honor. Though, even though, look at that verse 13. Though I deserved a divine smackdown, I received these things even though I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. That's what I was. When we think about violent, it's the word that we get, the cognate that we get the word hubris from. A violent, chaotic, raging, angry individual, a persecutor, a blasphemer. I was these things. That was where I was. I had no right to have any blessing. But God, but God, look at verse 13, but I received mercy. That word but in the Greek is a strong adversative. This is what I was, but God jumped in my path and I received mercy. He waved his judgments because I had acted ignorantly in the unbelief. Again, we need to read this very carefully. It looks like that God gave me mercy because I just didn't really know what I was doing. I wasn't that informed. My sins weren't that big of a deal. We could read it that way. And in English, when we think of ignorance, we think of ignorance in a passive sense. Well, I just didn't know. So how could God condemn Paul since he just didn't know? That does not make sense. Do you remember that Saul, before he was Paul, knew the law, should have been able to read the signs, knew God, knew the heart of God? The word here for ignorance, if you do a word study on it, almost universally it is used in an active ignorance. I know God, but I'm going to choose my own way. I'm going to ignore. I'm going to move away. I am going to unbelieve. I'm actively unbelieving through my active ignorance of what I know to be true about God. Paul is not saying, I received mercy because my sins weren't that bad. He's actually saying the opposite. I was ignorant and a God hater. There is nothing that God can do except give me justice and death or mercy. The only thing God can do is give me mercy if he's going to show me any kindness because I am a total lawbreaker. But I received mercy. He waived his judgment and gave the grace of our Lord and it overflowed me like a river that washed over me and he granted me and gifted me saving faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? 
Grace is in Christ Jesus. It is through the cross and through his death and through his blood that grace is realized. The gift of life is realized. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It sounds a lot like when Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you. It's like, listen up. This is really true. This is really critical that you hear this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul is saying, you may think that you do not qualify for grace because you are a sinner. Paul says, I was the sinner of sinners. And it is exactly my sinfulness that qualifies me for grace. Like Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the unrighteous. Those who don't even think they are a sinner will never qualify from grace because they don't realize they need it. It is the very place that you realize you're a sinner that is the prelude to receiving God's grace. We have a sinner-saving God. And why this example? Because he says, I am the foremost, in in the Greek, the protos, the, the first in line. I am the first one who should have received damnation. But verse 16, I receive mercy for this reason. That in me is the first in line for damnation. The first in line is the hater of God. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Maybe there was conversations in the early church that says, you know, Jesus is no longer here. He's died, he's risen again, but he is in heaven. Is his power still here? Is his grace still working? Can God truly accomplish and save sinners? And so what God is going to do, he's going to take the chiefest of enemies, the prime and foremost emissary of Satan himself that is currently destroying the church in order to display the richness of Christ, the richness of his grace, the richness of his power. He's going to take servant of evil number one and make him servant of righteousness number one. This is how great my grace is, he says that I can take the most broken and use him in a way that few in history have ever had the privilege to be used. And then here's the argument. If God's grace can overflow someone like Saul and make him a Paul, you should have no doubt that God's grace can overflow you. There is no sin. There is no evil so deep where God's grace is not able to superabundantly overflow and sweep you away in his love. Timothy, don't forget this. This is what we're about as a church. This is what we're about as the people of God, that God raises us up and that in our salvation that we are to be a display of the perfect patience of God. And then Paul breaks out in doxology in verse 17. Doxology, by the way, doxa, glory, Ology from the root word of to speak or to study. Doxology means to speak the splendors of God. He is so overcome with the grace of God. He breaks out in speaking the splendors of who God is. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see that Paul is setting up to Timothy, unlike the false teachers who are all about themselves and finding the glory in their own clever speculative arguments, Paul glories just simply in the grace of God and all glory be to God, the immortal one, the king of the ages, not king of just one age, but the king of all ages, the king of, he is invisible now, but all those who name Christ one day will see him with their waking eyes. Grace is God's gift that jumps in the way of the soul and makes him a Paul. It is God's gift through the Son that overflows kindness to make us something that we can never be on our own. Now, number three, what does a grace-weighted church look like? Don't worry, point number three will go quickly because it really is just a real quick summary of what we just talked about. What does a grace-weighted church look like? a church that feels the weight of grace. I'm gonna say this again and again, but it begins with Christ at the center. Our posture, however, we feel the weight of the law. We are cognizant of what we once were. And may we never forget that but for the grace of God, where would we be? We are cognizant of where we were and we are humbled by what Christ has made us to be. That's the posture of the church. Anyone walking into the church and feels that we're a bunch of we got it all together type people have missed the gospel. We should never lose the weight that where we be without Christ and the salvation does not breed arrogance and self-righteousness or some sort of deserving. I got it. Sorry for you lowly sinners out there. But no, I am humble that God would even jump in my path. That's the posture. And the characteristics of a grace-weighted church, like what Paul says, our strength comes from Jesus. May we have grand thoughts of God's grace and mercy. And like Paul, may our church be filled with people who are examples of divine patience. Filled with people who are examples of divine patience. You know who Nathan Smith is? Someone who required a lot of patience from God. You know who you are? Someone who requires a lot of patience from God. Praise God for the church where we have, thank you for your sinfulness that I have the privilege of exercising my spiritual gifts. And you back to me, right? We're a broken church full of broken people. We are all examples of divine patience. Do not set yourself up like the false teachers did who said, we know the law. We got it together, follow us. No, but for the grace of God, where would I be? I am simply an example of divine patience that God in his grace has elevated me to sonship. So therefore, we are heralds of a sinner-saving God. And our lives are to display God's work in us. We live the gospel life here and display the gospel. We go to the nations to display the gospel, to say, this is what I was, this is what Christ has made me to be, but it's only through Christ. And may our hearts, like Paul, may it just spill out doxology. Praise be to God. That in his grace, he would love one such as me. May we be a people that feel the weight of grace because of what Christ did on the cross for us. 
I hope that you will pray with me that we will be that kind of church. Would you bow your heads and pray? Heavenly Father, may we never forget from what you have saved us. May we never forget the testimony of Paul, blasphemer turned ambassador par excellence. May we likewise follow in his footsteps and boast only in Christ, boast in our weakness and boast in the glories of the risen Savior. And if there is someone here who has not believed in Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would recognize that they are a sinner and they need a Savior. But that no matter who they are, where they come from, what their week has been like, that your grace, if it can overflow to a Paul, it can overflow to them. And if that's you, you have yet to believe in the Son, Jesus, as your Savior. Come talk with me. Come talk with the pastor up here. Let us show you from God's word how you might be saved. But if you can and are willing, just in your seat right now, you can cry out and say, I am a Savior, Lord. I am a sinner and I need a savior. I cannot save myself. I am a sinner. I need a savior. Save me, Jesus. Now, Father, we pray in the power and the grace of your son, help us to be a church that lives out the living Christ, feels the weight of grace, and bears that grace not only in Lynchburg, but all the way across the oceans to the peoples, the many peoples who have yet to hear. To the praise and honor of God the Father through Jesus the Son by the power of the Spirit and all God's people said together nice and loud. Amen. Amen.